morning. It's so good to be with you all and join you uh, live online. To our members, I'd just like to say that it's a great privilege that we get to meet together in this way. And uh, to all of our guests, we're so glad. Thank you, sir. To the guests who are tuned in, I want to tell you right now, if you'll not turn off the broadcast, just hang on a second, okay? And uh, we, we're, we're so glad you've joined us uh, from wherever you are, and, and we've got people joining us from all over. And so we count it an honor that we get to meet together and we get to worship the Lord together. If you have a Bible close by, I want to ask you to grab it and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. The title of this message is The Crown, The Rule and Reign of Jesus. This is the third in our Easter series and the final message in that series today. The Crown, The Rule and Reign of Jesus from Ephesians chapter 1. We'll focus in on verses 15 through 23. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, starting in verse 15. He, uh, let's, hang on a second, I need to tell you what's going on, because if not, you'll be like, well, what's, where's it coming from? Well, the first few chapters, Paul's writing to give the believers, uh, reminding them who they are in Christ and what Jesus has done, very theological in nature. And the last few chapters are more practical in the implications of what those theological ram, uh, truths stand for. Okay, and then he shares this powerful prayer. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. They didn't just love the people in their church. They loved all Christians all over. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now look, this is what he prays for these people. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Today, as we read this powerful text, let's pray that God would speak to our hearts. Father, God, we confess that we need you. God, our nation needs you. All nations need you. And Father, we pray, Lord, I pray that you pour out your power right now. In every home that's tuned in, in every heart that's joined together through this live broadcast, and, and, and God, here at 
our church campus, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall in power. God, I pray that you'd wake us up to the reality of who you are and who we are in Christ. God, I pray if there's anything I planned on saying that's not of your will, God, that you'd strike it from my memory, that you would cause me to be unable to share it. Lord, I surrender. I, this whole message, God, I surrender my brain and my, uh, all of who we are, Lord. We want you to get all the glory. God, we want you to speak and we want you to move in our lives for your glory, God, and for the sake of so many people tuned in. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Everybody wants to be great. Did you know that? Everybody wants to be great. 1964, Muhammad Ali, young 22-year-old boxer, was able to meet Sonny Liston, who was a great heavyweight champion. And Ali knocked him out, or he won the fight. And Ali, right after that, just as brass as he could be, 22-year-old, says, I'm the king of the world. I'm the greatest fighter that ever lived. Look at my face. There's no marks on my face. I'm so pretty. And he had this brash attitude, and the, the, the world was shocked to hear this man, Muhammad Ali, which at that time his name was Cassius Clay. He says, I'm a bad man. He wanted to go to heaven, so I took him in seven. My uncle, Joe Frazier, actually one of the few people that knocked out Muhammad Ali. That was a joke. But you wouldn't know that because we're not in person. But Muhammad Ali was full of all of this nonsense, but at the same time, he wanted to be great. He told people he was great, and he did extraordinary things. He was fast in the ring. He's one of the greatest fighters that ever lived. And many years later, he began to get old. You see, young people grow old, everybody. The mortality rate in America is still 100%. But even in, as a 38-year-old, he was able to, have a comeback fight against George Foreman, the guy who made all the George Foreman grills, as you know him. And they're interviewing Muhammad Ali, and he says, yes, Father Time has caught up with me. But I'm trying some new things. I've been chopping wood, even wrestled a crocodile, an alligator. And he said, I tussled with a whale. I handcuffed lightning, threw thunder in jail. He said, I'm going to hit George Foreman so fast. Boop, boop, boop. And the world loved hearing Muhammad Ali. Why? Because he was so different. Do you know some years later after he retired and he began to go downhill physically, Muhammad Ali, there were three Baptist ministers that had gospel conversations with him. Two of those, Billy Graham and Adrian Rogers. You see, even Muhammad Ali needed Jesus to be his Savior. As we gaze today into the rule and reign of Jesus, I want to ask you this question. Do you know that you've been forgiven of all your sins? Do you know this Jesus that we're talking about? We're going through all this effort to put this online, to churches meet every Sunday. Why do they do it? Why do people give their life to this God? I want to tell you because he's real and he's powerful and he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the greatest 
and there's none that will ever be like him. And here, this church in Ephesus is present-day Turkey. It's where, the, where one of the ancient wonders of the world is located, the temp, Temple of Diana or Artemis. Theater is there, seated back in the day, 50,000 people. Powerful, beautiful city everybody wanted to go to. Paul's second journey there, he thought, man, these people are for real, but, but they may need some help, so he left behind Aquila and Priscilla to help them. His third journey, he d- decided so much, this church was so crucial for getting the gospel to the whole world, that they, he stayed there for three years. He gained so much influence, the Bible tells us in Acts 20 that the idol makers incited a riot against him. So he had to leave town. He probably writes this epistle in prison. And he writes it not to to the churches in Ephesus, but he writes it in such a way where it can be used for other churches. And we know it now as to being carried along as being an inspired word of God for all the churches. And so here Paul is giving them, trying to get their attention, I believe. He's reminding them of who they are. You see, they're in a very worldly city. And just like us, we're in a very worldly place that, we can forget who we are in Christ. And we, we're around the world so much, we start acting like the world and, and, and operating the same way as the world. And God wants us to be on a whole different level, spiritually, mentally. And so he says, I do not cease to give thanks to you in verse 16, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that God would give you the wisdom, that he would give you revelation, he'd open up your mind to what? Well, he says the knowledge of him. The knowledge of him. Opening truth here is that growing in knowledge about God helps us learn more about his goodness and grace. That's why we need to know the Lord. You see, a lot of people know about God, but God wants you to know him. Do you know him today? Have you experienced him Do you put your trust in him? Have you seen him show up and show out in your life? Have you seen him to be faithful? Do you know about the Lord only, or do you know him? But you see, when you feed upon the word of God, you say, well, how how do I know God? Paul says he's praying that it would be opened up their mind, revelation, that they'd become more aware of who he is. We believe God's given us the Word of God to help us explore who God is. You see, the Word of God, when we dive into it, it is alive and powerful and it gives us revelation and knowledge and that increases our understanding of who He is. It increases our gratitude. It changes our life. And the primary way we do this is by spending time in the Word and asking God to speak to us, listening to it, feeding upon it, diving into it, Letting it get inside of us. You know, Jesus was referred to as the Word of God in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why is that? Well, the written Word of God was given to men, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was sent by God to reveal the mind of God, just in the same way that the Word of God was. Revelation chapter 19, verse 13 says, He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and His name is... The Word of God. He is the revelation for us. And we will grow as close to God as we want to grow right now and today and during coronavirus. We'll read as much of the Bible as we want to read 
We'll get as close to God and we'll know him by how much, how boldly we seek him, but at the same time, how much he chooses to reveal to us. That's why Paul prayed this. He knew it took something on their part to be responsible to study, to be, do their due diligence to study in the Word of God, practice spiritual disciplines, but at the same time, Paul wanted them to come to know the Lord in a way that he knew the Lord. And he knew that you only get there by God opening up your mind and revealing his glory to you. Do you know the Lord? There's four things I'd like to share with you today that God desires for you to know. You ready? Four things that God desires for you to know. Number one, God desires for you to know hope. God desires for your life to know hope, to have hope. Look at verse 18. Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Do you know hope today? You can. Hope is a byproduct of our salvation. Hope flows out of a personal relationship with the living God. When you come to know the Lord, you begin to have hope. All of your hope in this world begins to fade, and you have a more secure, more stable hope. It's not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon whether this happens or that happens. You have a hope that is secure and steadfast. Paul says, I want you to know that you have hope. Psalm 42, verse 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God today. You know, hope is a noun and a verb, and Christians get to, get to have and do both of those. We have hope in the promises of God, and we get to hope for our glorious future. Do you have hope? If you have Jesus, you have hope. You may not realize it, but friend, if you'll gaze into the heavens, if you'll pray, if you'll spend time in the Word of God, you'll be filled with hope, and you'll be a lot more pleasant to be around. And the way you talk to people will be different. You won't mope as much. You'll be excited. You'll have purpose. Number two, God desires for you to know, for you to understand that you are rich in Christ. Filthy rich. Do you know that you're rich in Christ? You say, well, I don't have that much money. That's not what we're talking about here. God's riches are, is including money and so many more things. Paul says, I desire that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Why, why is it important for believers to understand this? Because if we don't understand this, we'll spend all of our time collecting, collecting, and strive for an inheritance on this earth that's going to rust up and be destroyed and be dependent upon the economy of whatever nation you live in. But if you realize the riches that you have in heaven, it'll change how you live on earth. John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus said to the disciples, In my Father's house there's many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you can be where I am. You know the place that I'm going. The Lord's filthy rich. He's rich resource-wise, but he's rich and, and we have riches in who he is by knowing him as our father. And he's our father, and because he's our father... 
We get to be partakers in everything that he owns and everything that he has because he's our daddy. A man was taking it easy one day. He was lying on the ground and he was talking to the Lord. And he said, Lord, how long is a million years? God said, well, to me, a million years is about a minute. The man thought to himself, he said, Lord, to you, how much is a million dollars? God said, well, to me, a million dollars is just like a penny. With this, the man thought for a minute longer and a moment longer. He says, Lord, can I have a penny? I'd like a penny. And the Lord said, yes, son, just wait one minute. I'll give you a penny. You see, a friend of mine told me that some of you didn't get that because you weren't paying attention. A friend of mine told me that God's so rich that he paved his streets that we walk on in heaven with gold. God's so rich that you take all the world's money from all the economies and compare it to God's money, the world's money looks like monopoly money. So may we store up treasure today in 2020 in the kingdom of God and not in this world. One is destroyed and one lasts forever. Which one do you want to be rich in? Number three, God wants us to know. God desires for us to desire, for us to experience his effectual working power. Do you know God's power in your life today? I mean, really, not you feel the heebie-jeebies at the worship service down at the Baptist church or whatever church you go to, but no, have you experienced the power of God? I'm talking supernatural power. Have you felt it before? It's available to all believers if they'll exercise a little faith in it. Verse 19, Paul says, I want you to know, and I'm praying, that you'll come to understand the immeasurable. What is immeasurable? It means there's no ruler for that. You cannot measure it. It's so large. It's so vast. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Think about it. We have wonder-working power with us like the prophets in the Old Testament, but also inside of us, inside of us. The word there for working is the energeia word. We get energy from it. It means energizing. The Holy Spirit is the original energizer bunny. He is always going and going and going. He is always working and working and working. He is always moving and moving and moving. Do you know this God? Do you know him in a personal way to where you get to see God move in power? Oh, friend, we, we, we hope and pray that we'll get to all experience this, that, that our faith is not artificial and fake and in some glass on a shelf. Man, our faith is real and personal that people can tell when they meet us on the street. They know that we talk about the Lord as if we've experienced the Lord. And we know, and if you truly know Jesus today, then you know this power. Maybe you've forgotten about it. Maybe you accepted Christ, you felt God's power, and you've seen it work in a powerful way. You know, man, there's no way that I could have been saved except by the power of God. 
You look back over your life, if you want to see God's power, you start thinking about all things in your life you had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with. It's God's work and power in your life. The things that he, the places he took you and the things that happened and the situations that he rescued you from, you've got to see God's power if you think about it. But maybe you, then you've got caught up. You became a little bit like Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. And you forgot of the power you had available to you. And sadly, for maybe for the past year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, you've been trying to do everything on your own strength. And that is a tragic, sad thing when we do that. That's why Paul's saying, man, I want you guys to understand you have power in you that you can't even fathom. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. We have wonder-working power. We have power that when we're trying to talk to somebody about the Lord and we say, God, I don't know what to say. I'm depending upon you. God will put his words in your mouth. God will give you wisdom in the moment to say things you're not smart enough to say, to give you things to do that you don't have the strength to do. God will put things on people on your heart, things on your mind, and give you revelation into his word. God will give some people visions and dreams. God will do great and mighty things which you know not when you start walking in the power of the King of Kings. Number four, and lastly, Paul says, I want you guys to understand the status. Number four, God desires for us to know the status of our risen Savior. God desires for us to know the status of our risen Savior. Maybe you're very unfamiliar with Christianity and all you know is you've seen a a cross with Jesus up on the cross, right? And you think, well, whatever happened to Jesus? I mean, I see he's in these churches, he's on the cross. In these other churches, he's not on the cross. I mean, where is Jesus? How'd that work out? I've, I've heard a lot about the life of Christ, and I've seen the crucifixion movie, but what takes place after that? Well, in verses 20 through 23, Paul gives us a picture of the ruling, reigning Jesus. Verse 20, he says that he worked... This wonder-working power, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Verse 20 reminds us that Jesus was raised from the dead, meaning, what is, what, why did that matter? Well, he defeated death, he purchased our salvation, he kicked the devil's rear end right there when he rose from the grave. Because of the resurrection, we have victory over death. We have victory over COVID-19. We see that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's far above all rule and authority on this earth, more powerful than any earthly ruler any person could ever attain. God is so much higher than that. He has all power, all dominion over all things. He has the name, the title that no one else has. Every title that can be given, Paul writes. And not only now, but forevermore unshakable kingdom God has. Does this help your perspective when you pray to God? Does this help you 
as you think about the hope that we have in Christ. And from the right hand of the Father, God's at work. He's receiving praise from all creation and from all the universe. At the same time, God is initiating, continuing the march of the kingdom going forward. He's working through his people, the bride of Christ on the earth, who Paul reminds us here that Jesus is the head of the body. That's how God chooses to work. And he also works through his angels who are special agents who work in the background who we cannot see. They're doing all kinds of things right now on secret missions. But God, for some reason, in his sovereignty, chooses to limit his power and his activity to his body, the bride, the church of Christ. Why is that? Well, that's a good question. We'll have to find out when we get to the top. But today, as we get ready to close, I want to share, remind you of a story that I have shared for three and a half years ongoing at our church, off and on. It's about a story of an evangelist named Duncan Campbell. Have you heard of him? Duncan Campbell, the Scottish Hebrides Revival of 1949. Many times when I've had a prayer illustration, I I probably wear this out too much, but I bring up these two ladies, Miss Peggy Smith, who's 82 years old, and Miss Christine Smith. They were sisters on the Isle of Lewis on the Hebrides Islands off the shore of Scotland. And they were homebound, meaning they, they couldn't go to church physically. They couldn't go where they wanted to go could not leave their home. But they began to pray once a week from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. They'd stay up real late at night. And they would pray for their people on their island. And they prayed for revival. And they longed for revival. And they yearned to see God work in miraculous ways. 82 years old, 84 years old. One was blind, she couldn't see. And the other one was crippled so much with arthritis that she hunched over. And they prayed for a man to be sent. Well, the leaders of the church, their church, they began to, they had a pastor and they would, when they, he would come by, they would tell him what they're praying for. I mean, they were bold and they, they'd pray, was everybody in our church right with God? I mean, they were asked those kind of questions. Like, they even said to their pastor, Pastor, you need to make sure you're right with God. They, they longed to see God move. And one day, other people in the church began to pray. And there were some deacons praying one day in a barn, prayer meeting. One young deacon stood up and said, It's absolutely humbug for us to be praying like this unless we make sure first that our hearts are right before God, that our hearts are clean. So that young deacon began to confess his own sin. And one at a time, it's like a domino effect. All the other men and all the other women began to confess their sins. God began to move. Miss Peggy Smith had a vision of an evangelist and also of young people, thousands of young people coming to the church. And so they decided that they would pray to ask a young pastor named Duncan Campbell to come preach, hold a series of meetings. Well, the pastor sent the invitation and Duncan Campbell declined because he had some other scheduled events and Pastor shared that, Reverend McKay, Miss Peggy's pastor, she, he shared this news and she says, well, 
Pastor, I understand what the man is saying, but God has said something else, and he'll be here soon. Within 14 days, Duncan Campbell shows up. For unknown reasons, some of his previous meetings were canceled, and he felt burdened to come. And he came, and he preached to a crowd of 300 people. Duncan Campbell's secretary is the wife of the great pastor, Ted Rendell. And they live to this day on the campus of the Stephen Olford Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And you can go there and talk to them about the Hebrides revival and many other things that they've seen God do. Duncan Campbell, he came. They met till 1045 and all of a sudden, as the meeting was wrapping up, People were walking out of the door. A young man was praying in the aisle. And all of a sudden, people began to come back in the church. The power of God fell. God began to work in miraculous ways. The music at the dance hall down the street filled with young people stopped. And young people being convicted and overcome by the conviction of sin fled the dance hall and made their way to the church. In the following weeks, these hundred young people, along with hundreds more, came to the church meetings. Sometimes people would get out of the bed late at night, dress themselves, and went running to the church. In the following weeks, people from other towns on the island would travel in buses to come. They'd say, why are you guys here? They said, we felt led of God to come to see what he's doing here, to be a part of it. Night after night, Worship services happened. There were 20,000, listen to this, 20,000 converts during the first five weeks. Duncan Campbell indicated that 75% of those that were saved during the Hebrides revival were saved before they came to the church building. Old debts were repaid. Marriages were restored. Several police courts became idle with no cases to try. Great, great move of God. You say, why are you sharing the story? Well, there's something that's gone viral recently and people have realized some other things that's taken place kind of connected to the story. And I want to share the rest of the story. And uh, I'm not saying that this is something we need to put our stock in a whole lot. The purpose that I'm sharing is what it's symbolic of. There's a young boy that's part of that revival named Donald Smith and he was saved. And this young man began to help the pastors and help facilitate the meetings. And sometimes he would pray and God just began to use this young man. Well, there was a young lady named Mary Ann. And she was the niece of those two sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. And Christine didn't get to be a part of the revival there, but she had immigrated to America in 1930. She was poor. She became a domestic servant until she fell in love with a young man named Fred. Marianne, her aunts sent her in the mail a Bible that was used by God in a special way during the Hebrides revival. Mary Ann was so touched by the story of revival 
that as she began to name all of her children, she named her fourth child Donald after that young man that was used by God during that amazing awakening of God. And Mary Ann eventually gave that Bible to her little boy. And today that little boy is the 45th president of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Now, maybe that's just coincidence. But today that Bible is in the Oval Office in Washington, D.C. And our president needs Jesus just like everybody. And if you totally despise our president, friend, I don't want you to turn off this message. I want you to listen to me. Forget what you think about our president. By the way, you're commanded to pray for him in the Bible. But just hold on your hatred for a moment. That little Bible is symbolic. First of all, it's the word of God. But number two, it's symbolic of what God did among a people and a great awakening where thousands and thousands came to faith in Jesus. And now that same Bible is in the Oval Office. Maybe God, and what I've heard many pastors say, maybe God's given us an opportunity to humble ourselves to be broken before the Lord, to come to God, get right with him. If we don't know Jesus, to be saved, to come to know and experience the richness that we have in Christ, to forsake the riches of this world, to come to Jesus and to have full hope, eternal hope, eternal life. For God to love the world, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life to come to the Lord and partake in the richness of knowing Jesus, to have a deposit of that richness and the first fruits with the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us. And to know his power in our life, to be used by God on this earth. God's given us the opportunity before we go to heaven to get right with him, to fall fresh in love with him, to get on his page, to maybe cancel all of our plans and to fill up our agenda with the plans of God. I wonder if today you're watching this and you've just been reminded that there's a God and you say, Pastor, I've I messed up. I'm so deep in sin and hurt and brokenness and I, I just, I can't. It's weighing down on my soul. And friend, I want to tell you this right now, that there is power in the name of Jesus. And if you'll call out to Jesus, you call out his name, you put faith in his name for him to save you for your salvation, He'll set you free. He'll break the chains of darkness. He'll shatter them at the mention of the name. And God will give you a new life and put you, pull you out of that pit and set your feet upon the rock. Do you know Jesus today? You can come to know the Lord. And as we get ready to close for all the believers, maybe you're there at home and the power of God has just come in your, your living room. And as you're reading these verses, you're thinking, man, I don't know if I've really experienced the power of God like that. As Paul's praying for these people in Ephesus, I don't know if I know God like that. I, I don't even know if I have hope. And I would say that if that's the case, maybe you don't know Jesus. Just because you walked an aisle without, uh, many years ago and just because you prayed a prayer, friend, that doesn't mean that you know Jesus. That doesn't mean that you've been born again. And so if you're unsure of that, you should make sure. And the way you do that, you say, Father, if I'm not born again, if I'm not 
saved, if I'm not forgiven, if I haven't began a new relationship with you, God, today, I want this day to be my day to be saved. God, I want to ask you to forgive me. God, I want to put all my hope and my faith in Jesus. God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. God, I want to commit my life to following you. Would you do that today? And next for the church, and lastly, may we pray that in the coming days that we would not miss the opportunity that's before us that when this thing, when the country opens back up and we come back to worship and we go back to our jobs just as normal and when things begin to pick up, that we would never let things go back to how they were. That would never happen again. That we would be changed forever. And that we'd have a new mission in life and a new perspective, a new peace, a new fresh walk with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father. God, as you are with us, Lord, many times what causes the power in our life to be stifled is our own arrogance and our own pride and our own knowledge. And God, we pray. God, I pray that you break us. God, I pray that in the name of Jesus, you break the yoke of pride that's around the church in America. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that the yoke of sin, of sexual sin in America that has enslaved so many men and women, God, I pray that in people's personal lives that are listening to this message, God, I pray that you break those chains in the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that they would come forward and repent and get help. God, I pray that you would, any other sins in our life, oh God, that our desire would be for you and for you alone. God, we wouldn't live for our own selves, but God, our life would be hidden in Christ, the founder and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. God, now as we sing this response song, Lord, we give you full liberty. We ask you, God, to invade our personal space, to invade our plans, to invade our life. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Breathe life into dead people. Encourage those who are weary. Bring hope to the hopeless. God, we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus.